Uh, if you were here last week, you might remember that um, in the Bible, God compares two mountains. Remember, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And uh, these two mountains represent two covenants or two deals that God offers to people. And uh, on one mountain, on Mount Sinai in the Older Testament, um, it represents this covenant of law. Okay, And then in the Newer Testament on Mount Zion or Jerusalem or the New Jerusalem um, in the Newer Testament represents God's grace deal. So there's a law deal and a grace deal that uh, God offers on these two different mountains. And uh, I think the tendency of most people is to focus on either one or the other. The tendency of most people is either to you know, sort of focus on the law or to focus on grace to the exclusion of the law. And uh, we need to remember, no, the same God spoke both covenants. The same God made both promises. Uh, the same God offered both deals. And that prompts a warning uh, in Hebrews chapter 12 where we were. In Hebrews 12, 25, the Bible says, See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. Don't refuse God when he's speaking. God spoke on both of these mountains. See to it that you do not refuse God who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, when God was speaking through Moses and warned the people through the older covenant, if they didn't escape, most of them died in the wilderness before they ever got to the promised land, right? So if they didn't escape because they ignored God's word, um, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, who spoke to us through Jesus? Jesus is the word of God made flesh. So God spoke the first time through Moses on earth, but how much more serious if we were to neglect um, the word that God speaks to us from heaven? And so there's this warning, you know, uh, that we better listen when God speaks. And God is a speaking God. Um, how much worse for the people who refuse to listen to God? And I just, I think about that. And you think about God is speaking today, but how many people totally ignore or refuse to listen? God is speaking today through Jesus. You know, and how, how much more serious uh, that we would refuse the word of God from heaven versus the word of God through Moses. So the truth about living in a relationship with God lies in the tension okay, between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. God is the one who spoke both covenants. He spoke at both mountains. Um, when Jesus came, he said, when he was here in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Don't think that I'm here to get rid of the law or the prophets, he says in verse 17. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the laws. What did Jesus mean when he said that? Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a single dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. And therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter uh, the kingdom of heaven. And so to get yourself in a right relationship with God only happens through God's deal of grace. I think the Bible's uh, crystal clear about that. Nobody is ever justified by the law. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 and uh, verse 10 Verse 10 and 11, uh, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous live by faith. There's many places in the Bible say the same thing. Romans 8, uh, verses 3 and 4, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could never do, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so there are many places in the scriptures that talk about how no one will ever be justified uh, by the law. In fact, uh, the law is really intended to help people recognize their need for grace. You know, if you ever decide, you know, or I'm sure you know people who think um, they're going to be right with God on the basis of being good. Well, God's definition of good is the law. And if you sit down sometime and just go through the law and evaluate your own life against it, you realize you're not good in God's eyes. Nobody can live uh, according to the law, up to the law. In fact, you know, um, When we talk about the law, a lot of people automatically just think the Ten Commandments. But the law, biblically speaking, is really the first five books of the Bible. Okay? The law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. And uh, if you were to read through the first five books of the Bible, you'll actually find there are 613 laws or commands that God gives. 613. If you were to take all the... Remember I said uh, the, the Ten Commandments are kind of a general... Uh, rule and you have to apply them to specific situations and then there's a whole bunch of case by case you know uh, God defines what happens in this case and in that case and if this happens this has to go and so forth and then there's all the ceremonial kinds of uh, laws and rules for the people of Israel and so on and you read through all of that there's like 613 specific laws that you could pull out of the first five books of the Bible the law humbles us the law prepares us for God to speak again from Mount Sinai, uh, Zion through Jesus and so forth. Furthermore, uh, Jesus explained that the Ten Commandments are really more about heart attitudes than they are about external boundaries. Like the Pharisees, this is where they got off the track. Uh, the Pharisees took the Ten Commandments and said these are the external boundaries to uh, you know, curb our behavior. And so we'll make more laws so that we make sure we don't go past these boundaries. And then forever trying to define uh, what the law actually means. Well, when Jesus came, um, Jesus said, no, uh, actually, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, he said the law is really about an inner attitude. It's about your heart. And uh, that's what he meant in verse 20 when he said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. 
The law, you know, taken as just defining external boundaries, misses the whole point. The law, as the, let's say the Ten Commandments, really are an exposure of the heart nature of God. And so uh, the law is designed to affect our hearts. And Jesus gives a lot of examples here. Let me just read one. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus said this. He said, you've heard that it's been said of old. You've heard from the law, right? You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, right, that everybody who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you idiot or you fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. Jesus said, you know, this is really more about understanding the heart of God. And really, it's from anger that the external actions come. It's from anger in our hearts, right, that turns into violence on the outside of our lives. And so the real aim of these commands is really our hearts. And if you read through the rest of, like, Matthew 5, you'll see there's a ton of uh, different examples that Jesus gives. And so if the law is concerned with the external and grace is concerned with the internal, we need to recognize that the law and grace are connected. They both are concerned about righteousness. They're both concerned with right and wrong. And they're connected to one another as the heart and our actions are connected in our own life. And um, the problem with the law, frankly, is that it has no power to really change a person's life on the inside. If you've ever tried to take the law and tried to fulfill it and live it, you'll see there's not, you, you won't have the power to do it. The great thing about grace is that it has the power to change a person's life at a heart level. And when your heart changes, your behavior changes. And grace is aimed at our hearts. And the Ten Commandments are designed to help us understand the very heart of God. And uh, once uh, grace enters our life, we find that we have the power, that the, there's a power that changes our heart, and a changed heart results in a changed life more in conformity with God's will and with the Ten Commandments. You know, everything about Mount Sinai makes it impossible to approach God. Remember, there was the fire and the smoke and the trembling and nobody could look and nobody could touch the mountain and all of that. Everything about Mount Sinai says, don't come near me, I'm holy. Don't contaminate me, right? Everything about Jesus and about Mount Zion says, welcome. Everything about the Mount Zion says, I love you. Come, come, you know? In um, uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, um, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, verse 6, uh, you remember, you'll be familiar with these words. God made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, Paul says, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Then he says this, for the letter kills. The letter of the law kills you. The letter of the law just makes you undone. It keeps you away from God. The letter of the law kills. But the spirit of the law gives life. See, there's power in um, the spirit. And so, and then he goes on here. He says, now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, what's he talking about? Ten commandments, where we are in uh, Exodus chapter 20. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because its glory, because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit 
have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent come with glory. See? And so, again, this is like comparing the two mountains. It's comparing the two uh, times when God spoke these covenants or these deals into people's lives. And not only that, but Jesus goes on to explain, as we just sang this morning, that all of these commandments are really an expansion on two ways that God first people live, right? Um, Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we just sang. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. So all of these commandments, the Ten Commandments, are really just an extension of those two great commandments. Jesus said all the law and the prophets hangs on these two commandments, right? And so when you study the Ten Commandments, you you recognize the first um, four commandments have to do with loving God. God says, if you're going to love me, if you're going to fulfill that number one commandment, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, this is what it'll look like in your life. Here's four commandments God gives us to how to have a relationship with him. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, um, then the last six commandments have to do with how to get along with each other and what that would look like. And so this morning, I just want to touch on these four uh, commandments that talk about loving God with all of our hearts. And next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about uh, the last six. But you'll notice back in Exodus chapter 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, in Exodus chapter 20, the first couple of verses, uh, God speaks these commands, right? And the people can hear it. Remember we said that uh, they started to hear this and they started to say to Moses, you talk to God and then you can talk to us, but we don't want God to talk to us anymore. We can't bear it all when God is giving these commands and so forth. And so in Exodus chapter 20, it says... God spoke all these words saying. So God spoke to the people, and here's what he said, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God. Now just think a minute. This is who I am. This is who's speaking to you. I am um, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord. I am the creator. I am the master of the universe. I am the Lord, your God. God, your Elohim, I'm personal, I know you, I'm relational, I'm the Lord God of the universe, but I'm also your God. And please notice, capital G, I am the Lord, your God, and guess what? I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the God who's already acted in your past. You know when the Red Sea parted? I did that. You know, when all those signs uh, went to the Egyptians to convince them to free you, I did that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That's who I am. I'm the God who's behind you. I'm the God who knows you. I am the God who created everything. That's who I am. And then God begins to talk about these uh, commandments. You know, you and I were made for a relationship with God. God is a personal God. He made us in his image and likeness. Why? So that he could relate to us and so that we could relate to him. And he says to these people, that's who I am. I am the Lord, your God. And so then he turns to the first command and he says um, uh, in verse 3, 
Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Notice the small g. You shall have no other small g gods before me. It's not like there's only one big g god. It's not like God is saying, well, there's a lot of gods to choose from and just make sure I'm first. No. He said, don't ever put any small g God before me. There's only one big G God, but there is a tendency in our sinful nature to allow small G gods to get in the way of our devotion to God. And I think it's because God has granted to every one of us free will. We can make our own choices and our own decisions, okay? And so one of the uh, things that that means is that we have the ability to confer God-like status onto anything or anybody. We have the ability to confer a God-like kind of, small g, God-like status onto another person, onto another thing, uh, onto a lot of things. And um, we can uh, confer God-like status onto anything or anyone. Uh, and, you know, the truth is God has given us everything to enjoy but nothing to ever take his place. God has given us everything to enjoy, but when we raise something that God has given us to enjoy to God-like status, it begins to compete with our devotion to him. Nothing in the universe was created to ever uh, take God's place. And um, so when we say, you know, when God says here in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, we say, well, of course. Until we start to think about it and ask ourselves, you know, who are or what are the small g gods um, in our lives that compete with our devotion to the big g God? Um, and again, we can make gods out of anything. Uh, you can make a god out of your problem. I've talked to people, you know, through the years who've really given godlike status to their problem. As soon as your problem is bigger than your god, as soon as you're more focused on your problem than you are on your god, all of a sudden, you're in danger of breaking the first commandment. You've made like a small g God out of your problem. It defines you. It identifies you. It, it occupies your uh, attention, and it, it diminishes big g God. We put him someplace where he's not able to help us with our problem and so forth, and we uh, become overwhelmed. Obviously, pleasures can be a small g God. Uh, people can be a small g God. Uh, think about, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and all of a sudden, you know, God is on the shelf someplace. And uh, I've, 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 my full devotion is to this person first before God and so forth. Money can be a small G, God. My reputation, small G. Uh, our looks can be a small G, God, you know. When they occupy more of uh, who we are or I, what we think our identity is than uh, what God says about us and so forth. Our self can be a small G, God. I think whoever looks for someone or something to do for them, what only God can really do for us is in danger of breaking the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other small g gods before me. And I think this um, simply says there's only room for one first in anybody's life. You have a lot of things going on in your life, but there's only room for one first. And this is the question of, is God really first in every area of my life? That's why when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus, we talk about a God-first life. Is God really first 
in all the areas of my life? Or are there small g gods that um, contend and uh, try to get in the way of our devotion to him? And I think this command is first for a reason. It's the first command because it's the most important command. If God isn't first in our life, well, then, you know, we're not going to pay much attention to everything else that he has to say. And so this command is first because it's the most important. Uh, We'll be casual about everything else if we don't have God first in our life. And um, I think this is important for us to uh, just ponder and think about because when we first read this just at a surface level, um, we think, well, of course not. There's There's only one God, and we know that, and we would never allow anything to compete with our devotion to him. But when you think about it, work can be a small g God. Um, all kinds of things, you know. And so ask yourself, like, well, why? I, I asked the question this past week. I said, well, why do people turn to small g gods? Why not just let God be God? Why not have God be first in our lives? Why, why would people uh, give God-like status to, to other things? And uh, it occurred to me, and I guess I would say it's because people don't personally know the true God. Because if we knew him, we would never allow anything to come between us and him. Um, It's because people don't know. The truth is, you know, life is broken, right? There's so many things that are wrong with life. I mean, every week there's more things that, you know, just keep showing up that are uh, wrong with life. And because life is broken, wherever there's life, there's change, right? Wherever there's change, there's loss, and wherever there's loss, there's pain. And when we have pain, we look for somebody to help us or something to help us. And uh, so often we look at, and to, to have something become this small G God uh, to help us with our pain. Uh, and the truth is, you know, if we've misunderstood God, if we're still back at Mount Sinai, uh, and we still think that uh, really a relationship with God is dependent on my behavior and, and what I do and don't do and all the rest of it, um, uh, is the source of our pain that we don't know God as he really is. Um, and we know we've let him down, and um, so we stay away. Uh, and so we look for some small G God to relieve our pain. I, I think, you know, for example, behind every addiction, if you dig down deep enough, you'll find pain. You'll find hurt. You'll find somebody who was broken someplace along the way, you know. And I remember um, I was thinking about a um, long time ago when uh, my, I was uh, just an, a student and uh, my mother got cancer. And uh, we had, uh, you know, we're praying and praying and, and everybody's praying. She was pretty young. Uh, she died at 47. And so we're praying, and we have other churches where we have friends, and they're all praying, and we've got missionaries, and they're praying in churches all over the world, and this and that and the other thing, and then she dies. And I can remember, like, a, a tempting thought coming into my mind at the time of saying, God, you know, I, I thought you loved me. I thought I could trust you. I thought you said you'd answer prayers. I thought you... And all of these kinds of thoughts, you know. And when you're young and something like this happens to you, Uh, You have to make a choice. You're either going to believe what you know is true and step up your faith a notch, and you're going to say, God, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. You know what you're doing. I trust you. This doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. I wish it was otherwise. I've prayed my heart out, but I'm going to trust you. Or you say, 
I've got to find someplace else to go because I can't trust God anymore. He let me down. You know? Uh, and, and I've, you know, listened to stories all through the years of different people who've had these traumatic things happen when they were young. And they've come to the conclusion, I really can't trust God. Uh, I thought I knew him, and I thought he was like this, and I thought when this happened, that would happen, and, and it didn't happen, and so I have to find some other way to deal with my pain. And instead of moving toward God, they move away from God. They create a small g God. And it can be out of anything. It can be good things. But it's an attempt to avoid dealing personally with a God who says, I'm your God. I'm relational and personal, and I love you. Uh, so don't have any other gods, small g gods, before me. Second command, uh, starting in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity to the fathers of the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. If the first um, commandment is to not bring anything up to the level of God in your life, don't let anything compete with you know, God being first in your life, the second commandment is don't ever try to bring God down to something that's more manageable than he is. Don't ever try to reduce God to something uh, in, in identity with his creation. Don't ever make the mistake, uh, if, 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 you, if you think about it, right? The first command is don't lift anything up to God's status. The second command is don't ever try to bring God down and equate him with something in the creation. No carved image can do uh, for God. Don't try to make the invisible God visible. People want that. We want something tangible, want something to hold on to, want something instead of, again, uh, relating to God in a personal way. No idols could ever represent God. Only Jesus is the exact representation uh, of him. And uh, he'll be back uh, when Mount Zion comes down, the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, we can't substitute uh, our limited perception of God for God's revelation of himself. You know, every once in a while, somebody will say, well, I like to think of God like this. And I like to say, you know, it really doesn't matter what you like to think about God because God has revealed himself. God has made himself known. And what's important is that we adjust our understanding of God to what God says is true about him. And uh, you notice in this uh, second commandment, God says, I am a jealous God. Jealousy is the fear of being replaced. You think about it, what is jealousy? Well, it's the fear of, why do we get jealous? It's the fear of being replaced. And uh, God says, I, I don't want anything to ever, you know, replace me in your life. I'm your God, and I want to be uh, that God. Uh, and I'm a jealous God. I don't want anything to ever uh, compete with me. God, in fact, won't tolerate being uh, compared to anything, especially something from his creation. And, um, you know, if you remember the essence of sin, when Satan came to our original parents in the Garden of Eden, he said, look, you can be your own God. You can define God. He can be like you. And usually when people say, well, I like to think of God like, uh, it's usually, you know, an, an, uh, something of themselves that they project 
Uh, they want God to be like them, but he's not. So never confuse the creation with the creator. Uh, you shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath. The third command, uh, verse 7, just verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name uh, in vain. In vain means something without substance. Don't ever use God's name as if there's nothing behind it. We sang this morning, you know, uh, let everything within me praise him. Praise him, praise him. We, Psalm 150, all about praise. Why? Because we, as God's people, are called to exalt his name, right? We're called to uh, brag on his name. And uh, this commandment says, don't ever use my name in an empty way, in a hollow way, in a vain way. Don't use my name in vain. Don't misuse uh, the name of God in an empty way. God's names are significant to him, right? They reveal who he is. Uh, you know, there's over 500 names and descriptions and titles that are assigned to God in the Bible. So the opposite of this command would be reverence, to reverence his name. Remember Jesus, he said, when you pray, pray like this. Hallowed be thy name. You know, God's name is special. We can't toss it around like it's just an ordinary name like everybody else's name. Uh, God reveals himself through his names. And uh, I think Jesus was kind of getting at this a little bit in um, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 12, uh, Jesus is talking and he says this, he says, I'm going to tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. I mean, that scares me, right? I mean, don't you, doesn't somebody... Am I the only one that somebody pushes my buttons and things come out of my mouth that I, didn't, I thought were gone? And there they are again, you know? I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. It matters what we say. Uh, God is well aware of what we say, and especially when we uh, invoke the name of, of God. Uh, we're called on, as I said, to magnify the name of God, to brag about the, the God who owns the name, to fight against the misuse of God's name, and uh, to try and correct people who misunderstand who God really is and so forth. Exalt his name together. Uh, he is the source of everything good, both now and for eternity. All right, and then the fourth command starts at verse 8. Um, remember the Sabbath day, the seventh day. Sabbath just means seventh. Uh, to keep it holy. Now, holy, you remember, means set apart, different. Holy means something that's set apart really exclusively for God. So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou work. Six days shalt thou work. Okay, but the seventh is the Sabbath. And uh, the seventh is the Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. He made it special. He made it unique. He set it apart. The Sabbath day. So um, if I'm really going to be uh, first, God says, in your life, uh, I should show up in your schedule. 
if I'm going to live a God-first life, uh, I need to schedule uh, God into my life because it's very easy to just go on and uh, ignore him and so forth and count on him to be there without ever giving him the attention that he deserves. Uh, To be intentional about setting aside time uh, for God. Uh, to set it aside, to make it different, to make it holy, to make it unique, to make it devoted to God. And basically what God is saying here is, uh, if we want to get technical about it, 24 hours a week, right, one out of seven days, you should set aside for me. And uh, if you were to uh, sleep, you know, and eat and take a shower maybe uh, in that 24-hour period, uh, let's say we take 12 hours to rest and to do those kinds of things, Uh, then there's 12 hours uh, to serve and to worship uh, God. And so I don't know if you've ever done this, but just to take a little inventory of your week, and I don't think God cares how it's divided up or spread around, but uh, is there like 12 hours that I say, you know what, this is set aside for God. This is part of my week that um, God is first. Uh, This this passage uh, ties the Sabbath day, right, to creation. It says that God set aside the Sabbath because, uh, you know, God uh, created everything in six days and then rested the seventh day. And so part of the reason for the Sabbath is to stop and remember that God is the creator. God is the source of our life. He's the source of everything that exists. That's good. And uh, part of the reason for the Sabbath is to be able to uh, step back from all of that and to entertain the rhythm that God has designed for us to remember that everything, including ourselves, was made by him. In um, Exodus chapter 31, there's an interesting passage, uh, verse 13, uh, that talks about the Sabbath day, and it gives a different reason for why we should keep a a Sabbath or a seventh. Um, God is talking, and he says to Moses, uh, you should speak to the people of Israel and say this, okay, above all, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, and uh, for this is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Uh, To sanctify means to change. And so um, when you think about this, it seems to me there are two things being said. You should keep a Sabbath day because, number one, it's a sign that you're my people. And I say, well, a sign to who? Well, it's a sign to the rest of the world. Uh, if you get serious about giving God, you know, top priority in a seventh of your life, um, the rest of the world is going to notice that. If you say, um, you know, this is my time for God, and so, you know, I can't play golf. No, I can't, uh, you know, do extra work. I can't, you know, I'm going to turn down extra money to earn time and a half because, you know, this is my time with God, and so on and so forth. When you begin to live like that, all of a sudden the rest of the world says, wow, there's something more important to these people than what's normally important to everybody else. Uh, when, when it's more important than uh, anything else, and we say, you know what, this is my time that's set aside for God, and I'm going to use it for him, and I'm not going to allow other people to dictate to me you know, what's going to happen during this time, because it's dedicated to God. And that's why I say it should show up in your uh, date book or whatever, uh, so that you can uh, actually uh, be intentional about it. And then in um, Exodus 31... Oh, the second reason here in this passage is because God is in the process of changing us. You know what? God is getting us ready to live in heaven. If you're serious about going to the promised land, uh, by the way, um, John Soto died this past Friday. I don't know how many people know him, but he 
came to this church for a while and uh, came to Christ late in life, a very successful businessman and so forth, made parts for Sikorsky aircraft and has factories all over the country and whatever. And, uh, you know, it was a beautiful thing when uh, he came to Christ. Uh, I don't know any other arrangements yet, but, um, you know, I watched God sanctify John, change him, just changed him. He's a businessman, successful, the boss, used to telling everybody what to do, and had a hard time at first trying to understand that God was going to tell him what to do and that it was going to be by grace. He was very uh, uh, generous. He's given uh, lots of money to lots of different causes, including our church and the counseling center and so on. And, um, you know, uh, I watched God change that man. It was a beautiful thing. And God says, keep the Sabbath because I'm, going to, I'm in the process of sanctifying you. Cooperate with me. Give me some time, would you? You know, uh, get out of all the normal routines of your life and give me some time to be able to focus because I'm sanctifying. I'm changing. I'm getting you ready to live in the promised land. Cooperate with me. Take some time. Read your Bible. Take some time. Talk to me. Take some time. Be with my people. You know, um, serve me. Get in the, in the, mood, or in the um, habit of serving me and, and so on. And so... And then uh, there's another passage in um, Deuteronomy and, uh, that, again, talks about the Sabbath. And uh, here's what it says, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 15. Now, in Deuteronomy, we're about 40 years after God gave the original commandments. Moses is talking to the kids of the original people who came out of Egypt, and he's rehearsing the Ten Commandments. He's reminding them of what God said to their parents 40 years ago. Most of them have died in the wilderness, and so he's you know, reiterating the Ten Commandments. And here's what he says, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep a Sabbath day. You should remember that you were a slave and that God brought you out with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and freed you. And when you translate that into the New Testament, you know, we should remember that we were slaves of sin. We were slaves of darkness. And with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God sent his son to the cross to take our place and free us from all of that, that we might have the promised land in our vision. And part of the reason for the Sabbath day is to take some time. You know, when we come around the Lord's table, Jesus said, do this to remember me. Why? Because we have this habit of forgetting. And we need to keep it towards the surface of our life in order that it might serve us the way God intended. So um, uh, three reasons why God gave the Sabbath. So now you know, right, that while Moses is up on the mountain and God is speaking these things to him, you know what's going on at the bottom of the mountain, right, with the people. Remember, the people couldn't come on the mountain, and so Moses is up on the mountain, and uh, in Exodus chapter 32, uh, we read what's going on. While God is talking to Moses and giving If you read from Exodus 20 all the way to 32, you'll see that God was uh, prescribing what the tabernacle should be like and and had some of these uh, more specific case-by-case laws that he was giving and so forth. And, of course, the people are at the bottom waiting for Moses to come down. Moses is gone for 40 days, 40 days, a little over a month. Okay, and what's going on at the bottom of the mountain? I'll tell you what's going on. The people are breaking all four of these commandments. The people who said, whatever God says, we will do, The people break all four of these commandments. All the things that are important to God, the people are doing the opposite. Let me read it for you. 
In um, Exodus chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us small g gods who shall go before us. Small g gods. Thou shalt have no other small g gods before me. Number one thing, you know, Moses, we don't know what happened to him. He's up the mountain. We haven't seen him. And uh, we, need, we need something to follow. We need, we need something to identify, you know, and hold us together and, and, and so forth. And we don't know what happened to him and so forth. So he's, they say to his brother Aaron, uh, up, make us gods, small g gods, who, who can go before us. Second thing. As for this guy Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. My friends, God brought you up from the land of Egypt, not Moses. Moses was just a spokesperson. Moses was just a man like any one of us. God is the one. You think Moses did those miracles? You think Moses parted the Red Sea? But see, the people made the mistake of identifying a person in God's place. And it's much easier to just relate to a person. Oh, I like that guy Moses. And oh, yeah, he did this and the Red Sea parted and this and that. It's easier to do that than it is to personally relate to God. And so they make this mistake of trying to bring God down to Moses' size as if Moses was God. Huge mistake. The second commandment, right? Uh, as for this man Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know whatever became of him. No, God brought you up from the land of Egypt, not Moses, Okay. And, uh, and then what happens, Aaron says to them, that's such a funny passage. Aaron says to all the people, all right, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, uh, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people take off all the gold that was in their ears, and they brought it to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Thou shalt have no other in the old King James, graven images. Don't make any graven images. And here he is taking a you know, carving tool or a graving tool and making a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And uh, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Do not use the Lord's name in an empty way, in a vain way. What these people did and what they are going to do uh, has absolutely nothing to do with the God who created them and loved them and delivered them from Egypt. You can read about their party and so forth, but Aaron tries to twist it around as if this is a God-honoring thing. We're going to make a feast to the Lord. The people should have taken a Sabbath. And they should have thought, wow, God is the one who's done this in our past. And God is the one, you know, who's said these commands to us. And we ought to take, you know, we ought to stop before we just have this big party and celebrate this golden calf and, and all of that kind of thing. But they didn't do that. And Aaron leads the way. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. It had nothing to do with the Lord. So they rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat. They rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses... Go down the mountain, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How serious was that to God? 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God says, I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses, and make a great nation. And then you can read Moses' prayer and how he pleads with God and how God relents and so forth. How serious are these four commands to God? And how easily are they broken and how easily do we rationalize about them? But if we're to live a God-first life and love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, here are four basic kinds of things that, that we then need to apply to our own lives. We need to figure out what does this principle mean in my particular situation and then honor that principle uh, above all. If we're going to love God, he better be the first priority in our lives. And uh, if we're going to honor God and love him with all of our heart, we better make sure that nothing is more important to us than him. And um, don't ever try to make him more manageable than he is. He's way bigger than any of us can conceive. And uh, he's greater than everything in creation. And uh, be really careful when you talk about him. We're the people who are called upon to praise his name. We're the people who are called upon to honor his name. And that when other people use his name in vain, we're the people to talk about, hey, listen, we know who he is. We know the God behind the name. And we have the privilege of uh, speaking for him. And then finally, make sure that he's uh, in your schedule. (laughs) Make sure that he shows up in a regular way and that by looking at our date books, he would know that he's the most important and first in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I think we're really thankful on two fronts this morning. Number one, that we don't have to try and relate to you through the law. That you've provided a new covenant called grace. And that you've taken away, Father, all the penalty and all, all of our shortcomings have been wiped out through the blood of Jesus. And that is a gift beyond our description that when we Uh, begin to think about the law and we begin to think about how we live and how easy it is for us to break the intent of these laws and how easy it would be for you to condemn us. But instead, you have chosen to love us. We're so thankful. And at the same time, Father, we're thankful for the law because it tells us what's important to you. It reveals to us what it involves. It's easy for us to say, oh, we love God. But when we stop and think what that means to you, if we're going to love you, this is what it would look like. And these are the things that bring honor to you. And uh, you're the one who defines, Father, what that love uh, really would look like, not us. And so I'm thankful for the law because as we read it and think about it, it gives us uh, the opportunity to adjust our lives according to your will. And it allows us to understand you and to understand ourselves so much better. And so help us not to divorce the law from grace, but help us to realize that really the truth is between uh, Mount uh, Zion and Mount Sinai. And may we be people, Father, who glorify you and uh, speak, Father, uh, truth on your behalf. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.